0: and restrictions apply. When you wake up in the morning and check your phone, does it feel like this or like this? Because with Shopify, your morning can feel like this way more often.
1: Hi, everyone. Happy New Year. It's 2019, and we're looking forward to bringing you a new season of Freelance to Founder in just a few weeks. It'll be season six, and we've got eight incredible stories of entrepreneurs lined up for you. It's a group that's produced a wide ranging assortment of companies and includes A.J. Harbinger of The Art of Charm, Chelsea Baldwin of Get Copy Power, Tom Kolzer, CEO of A Weber, Paul Jarvis, founder of Creative Class, and the author of Company of One, Shannon DeYoung of House of Who, Brian Castle of Process Kit, Pam Kapalin of Brunch and Budget, as well as Susie and Todd Bullock of Hey Grill Hey. In the meantime, one of our most popular episodes ever was the story of Chris Doe, founder of Blind, a creative agency in Los Angeles, California, and he's the host of The Future, an incredibly popular channel for designers on YouTube. Chris interviews and even coaches designers there, while also featuring episodes that teach important principles that freelancers and creative agencies should consider. This particular episode was released in Season 4, February of 2018. So without further ado, I bring you Chris Doe and the future.
2: We've been going to business now, year over year, 300% or more in revenue. Why is that? It's because... The theory is we've given way more value than we've asked people to give back to us. If you're on the right side of that equation, you'll have a sustainable business for the rest of your life.
1: Welcome, friends, to Season 4 of Freelance the Founder, a production of Milo. I'm your host, Brandon Hall, and it's so good to be back. Here on the podcast, if you're new, we tell the stories of solopreneurs who've scaled their businesses to something much bigger than themselves. In some cases, they're now multi million dollar enterprises with dozens or hundreds or even thousands of employees. In others, they found ways to build highly profitable small businesses with a modest cast of supporting assistance. Hopefully, you'll come to appreciate each entrepreneur's backstory and how it factors into their present day success. You'll discover how their upbringing and their mindsets shaped their company, and how in some cases they defied the odds or overcame extreme adversity. On today's episode, you'll get to know Chris Doe. Chris is an Emmy Award-winning designer and brand builder. He's the founder of Blind, a brand strategy design consultancy based in the heart of Santa Monica, California. Now, Chris's family came to the United States from Vietnam, and while his parents were well educated, they had to start all over again as refugees in a new country. For Chris, what started as an innocent love for art as a young child, like most kids have, became a fascination. His fascination became his profession, and his agency has thrived over the 20 years since. So first, you'll get to know Chris better. Then we're going to share some really great insights he's come to learn about how to attract the right kind of clients and differentiate yourself from the crowd. But first, we have two new sponsors to tell you about for this first episode of Freelance to Founder. This episode of Freelance the Founder is brought to you by Ripple. If you're going to grow your solo business to something bigger than yourself, you're going to need to attract new clients and customers, which means you're going to have to step up your marketing game. But it's hard to go from a one-person business to hiring a full marketing team overnight. And that's where Ripple comes in. Ripple is like having a marketing team in your pocket. In fact, it's designed for small business owners just like you. With Ripple, you can create professional videos and images without having to hire a video and design team and automatically share your creations to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and more without having to hire a social media team. Plus, they've got over 200 proven ad templates, personalized recommendations, and goal tracking to make sure you're always getting a positive ROI out of your social media marketing efforts. Freelance to Founder listeners can get unlimited access to everything Ripple has to offer for seven days. Just visit Ripple.com slash FTF. That's R-I-P-L dot com slash FTF. This episode of Freelance to Founder is also brought to you by FindSideGigs.com. You know, one of the hardest parts about scaling your creative business is finding the right kinds of projects and clients that can be a long-term asset to your business. FindSideGigs.com makes finding the right clients easier by sending you free job listings you can add to your roster, regardless of how much extra time you have each week. Not only do they send you freelance and side hustle gigs, but they also empower you to identify the decision makers of the company so you can reach out to them via email. We're talking remote jobs with real companies. So you can learn more and sign up for their free gig list at findsidegigs.com. That's finesidegigs.com.
2: I'm trying to sound the alarm, the ringing the bell, if you will. They say that if you're living in a first world country, you need to take advantage of market forces that are in your favor today. You have clients willing to pay you in dollars for work that you can then get and then hire other people to help you make at a lower price. But you have to elevate yourself from the person who's going to be in the grind making it yourself, your are and your company and yourself, potentially your family, the benefit of being in a first world market. So you have to develop skills to talk to the client. You have to market yourself. You have to brand yourself and you have to elevate and position who you are and you have to be able to tell your story. So now when you go into the blind side, it tells you we're a strategic brand design consultancy. It doesn't say we make videos for Coldplay or for Nike or Sony for Xbox. Yes, that's the product that we produce at the end of a process, but that's not what we're trying to sell.
1: You know, sometimes as a freelancer, you get a false expectation of how successful you'll be if things come easy early on. You do great work for people who already know and trust you, and they tell a few friends and everything clicks, and then you have to find real work. Or you have to reshape the type of work you'll do because you're being called upon to do work that's outside of your expertise. Has this happened to you? It it happened to Chris Doe. Despite a great deal of success, even growing his firm to millions in revenue, Chris found his agency wasn't well positioned for the future and he had to reacquaint himself with how to grow. You're going to learn about his love affair with conflict because this is his story. But before we dive into all the practical how to's of what he did to grow his agency and even pivot later on, you've got to fully appreciate his backstory.
2: A first-generation immigrant refugee from Vietnam. In the collapse of Vietnam in 1975, my parents came to the United States as refugees and we had to rebuild our lives. As such, I had parents who really didn't understand the culture, the language, and the ways things worked here. And so I inherited a lot of that from them. And for a lot of part of me growing up, I just wanted to fit in. And I didn't fit in at all because I was living in a predominantly white neighborhood and one of a few Asian kids who showed up. So there was a lot of misunderstanding, uh, racism and, and bigotry and bullying that I had to deal with. Now, if, if you look at me, even today, I'm not a big guy, I'm five foot eight. And I was a skinny kid. I didn't work out. I was not athletic at all. And so I became an easy target for always, it seems like, the biggest, strongest kids in my class. And it didn't help that we moved around a lot as well. Both my parents come from really large families. I think on my mom's side, she has eight or nine brothers, maybe 10. And my dad has eight or nine brothers and sisters as well. And they're both the older siblings uh, of their, their many siblings. And I think they had a sense of responsibility. So uh, I, I think for both of them, their childhood was cut off a little bit, right? So when you have so many brothers and sisters to look after just to help your parents out, I think part of that, you just grow and mature faster. And I think that shaped both of them. It's interesting how they come from totally different worlds and personalities, but they found a commonality. My, my, both my parents were really hardworking, believed in education, and were juggling multiple things at the same time. We went through a lot of transitions and each time I never felt like I fit in. So when we're living in the lower class neighborhoods, I wasn't tough enough. I wasn't street enough for the kids there. And it was all about proving your metal and your toughness. And so kids would just want to fight me for no reason. So I got into a couple of scraps there. And as I moved through the middle to upper middle class neighborhoods, then it was about, gosh, um, I, I still don't fit in because everybody's white and, and it, it's just trying to fit in. So I... I I, be, I became, as, as a result of that, I think, uh, a very shy, inward-looking, introspective person.
1: Now, shyness is no crime, nor is being an introvert, but those traits held Chris back. He found his solace in art. As a six-year-old, he'd often climb onto his uncle's lap and get lost in drawing. Shapes, designs, it didn't really matter so much what he drew, but he loved the praise he received from family members. That uncle bought him a pack of colored markers, a small purchase with a huge impact,
2: and his mother bought him an airbrush kit. He was in a whole new world. I have to admit, for a long time I lived a double life in that there was this latent creative person inside, but there was this logical person on the other side that said, we have no positive role models that we can think of in terms of, of somebody who's pursuing art that isn't living on the street or working in the fairgrounds. Those are only things I was exposed to. There was the world of high art in and, and museums, and then there was everything else, like people really struggling on the streets. Though Chris says
1: he repressed that art when he was young, he did find an outlet in high school.
2: Between my junior and senior year, I was looking for a job during the summer, and my brother connected me to his wrestling coach, who said that, hey, I know a guy who, who could use your talent. And he turned out to own a silk screening shop, just a couple of blocks away from school. And so I, I said, okay, great. So he set up an interview for me. I walked in. I showed him a few pieces of my quote-unquote art, basically loose drawings and designs that I made. And he said, great, you could start. And so I started inking his illustrations on acetate and cutting rubbath. And that's how we're and that's how I learned about trapping and about separations and how things worked in the silk screening shop. Now, keep in mind, I don't, I didn't have the hand skills that he had. So I was a wreck trying to do this. He literally said to me, "Uh, go ahead and do this for me and I'll see you tomorrow. So I sat in the shop while while other people were working in the back, pulling screens and printing shirts, trying to ink over his drawing. And just my hand was shaking because I couldn't, I couldn't get that smooth line. Like when a master sits down and he shows you, it's like, oh, that's pretty easy. This is Brad Shiboya and he worked at Atari back when arcades, the big cabinets were a thing and he designed, I don't know if he designed Centipede or whatever, but he worked on those cabinets and designed those things. And, and I asked Brad one time, I was like, Brad, do you mind if I ask you how much money you make? He goes, well, Chris, I think I, I, I pull, uh, i like to think that I pull at least $100,000 a year. And that blew my mind because this is the 90s, okay? And here I am growing up in, in Silicon Valley. And I was thinking, I'd like to make uh, $35,000 a year. I think that would be good. Like $100,000 was like making it like you're a baller. So when he told me that, I was like, wow, I guess there is something here. Brad did
1: everything by hand. Beautiful brush effects were done with a a compass and a straight edge, very manual, intimate task. And Chris was enthralled with his work. And while his eyes were opened by what Brad accomplished professionally through his shop, it was a simple errand one day that
2: expanded Chris's mind and opened him to a whole new world. So he sends me one day to go and pick up something. He says, go to Dean's place. It's just around the block. Come back. He's got some typeset for me. I didn't even know what that meant. I get in my car. I drive. And Dean didn't live far away. And so Dean says to me, hey, uh, you, you, you want to come in? You want to wait a little bit? I'm not done yet. So Okay. So walk in, it's a basically a tract home. It's a single story house in California. It just looks like what you imagine it to be. I go down the hallway and as I turn the corner following Dean, it's like this magical room appeared before me. All the creative tools that you imagine an artist to have. And he had little mock ups, little packaging samples for remote control uh, wheels and things like that for cars. And I was just blown away. So as Dean's putting up, putting in his finishing touches on a monochrome, self-contained Mac, like a Mac 512K. And I was just fascinated with Dean. And I asked Dean a bunch of questions because he was working, finishing up his thing. Like, Dean, is this what you do for a living? Is there another job that you do besides this? And he looked at me like, you're crazy, kid. Yeah, it is what I do. He started telling me about design and he gave me his business card. And I formed a relationship with Dean. I think for me, what crystallized it in that moment was one man with a box could work as a professional designer. Whereas Brad had a shop, a whole support system, he was an entrepreneur, it seemed like there were too many barriers to get there. But when I saw Dean working at home, by his lonesome, doing really cool things, that really turned me on. So this this thing sparks in my mind that pursuing graphic design as a profession is a real thing because... I didn't touch him, but I could see and almost touch him. And it was very real at that point.
1: Chris was locked in from a motivational and an inspirational standpoint. He knew what he wanted to do for a living. He'd been inspired by Brad and Dean thoroughly. He just knew he was going to need some time to develop a portfolio of his own. He was going to have to get some training from a local school. And that was the biggest problem for him at this point in his life.
2: Okay, if you don't know Asian culture, I'm going to give you a little insight into Asian parent thinking, okay? Community college is considered a disgrace. It's like purgatory for bad students, bad children, okay? Because once you go to community college, you're just half step away from dropping out of community college and going to vocational school and then being a tradesperson. And for them, that was not acceptable. They didn't make the sacrifices they made, worked a gazillion hours every single week to see their kids disappear into vocational school and do a trade. I I spent a year in community college to work on my portfolio because I I was what I would consider a late bloomer to graphic design. And I meet Candice Lopez. uh, And Candice invites an art center graduate to go and present to our class. And so I am just a dumb kid, just like I'm in commercial art one, right? At community college. And this guy comes in. His name is Luis Fitch. He just graduated. And he shows his portfolio that is just mind-blowing, Mind-blowing. Like the identity design work that he did was incredible. The packaging, the level of craftsmanship. And he tells us all this thing. He says, if you think I'm good, I'm just one of many. And there are many people more talented than me. And that just floored me. Because I was thinking, okay, there was Brad and there was Dean. And now Luis comes in. he, He kills it. So, you know, he's on that next level. And he tells me that and tells the class that there are people way better than him. So there was this gigantic intimidation factor. All right, here's the thing. Chris has a philosophy.
1: He believes that creativity comes from conflict. Conflict is a theme that constantly reappears throughout his life. For example, he had conflicting feelings at this moment in community college. On one hand, internally, he's inspired and excited and focused on perfecting his craft. On the other, he's intimidated by the talent of those around him. There's also the parental factor where his mom was increasingly convinced he'd never accomplish anything if he limited himself to community college. He needed to do something about this conflict.
2: I was like, what do I do? It, it almost broke me. But I think in part of that whole pursuit of something, when you feel like slowly, one by one, um, everybody that you care about and you think that cares about you is turning their back on you, it, it puts you into a into a corner. And in my mind, in my kind of adolescent, teenage mind, I felt like this is it. The world is collapsing around on me, and I have to do this for myself. And what motivated me, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, was spite. I didn't want to do it for me. I wanted to do it because I wanted to prove them wrong. Because as that year was like dwindling away, and I hadn't finished my portfolio, and I wasn't anywhere near finishing it, Everybody was just resigned to the fact that, yeah, he's another casualty to community college. That was all talk. And I know that I was very self-centered. I was unfocused and undisciplined. And I, I had made a promise to myself. I said, you're not going to waste your time anymore watching those late night shows and the CNC Dance Factory and all that kind of stupid stuff you used to watch. And, and you're not going to wait to the last minute anymore to do your homework. You're going to apply yourself. You have 30 days now because that's when your brother's leaving and all this access is gone. You have 30 days to get your act together. So I hustled like I never hustled before. And I got my portfolio done. What was driving me the whole time, that fire, was because I kept saying to myself, kind of like gritting my teeth, I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to go there. I'm going to do this on my own if you need be.
1: A few years later, Chris graduated and then did a short stint at Epitaph Records in Los Angeles before he finally realized it was time to start his own agency, Blind.
2: I graduated in 1995, in the summer of 1995. By October, November of 1995, I started my company. And it's it's been going on ever since, okay? And the kind of work we got was reflective of the time. CD-ROMs, interactive CD-ROMs were a big thing. Interactive media was just becoming a thing. Uh, designing web this is what i would consider web 1.0 1.1 and there's a lot of opportunity but i don't know what i'm doing so any kind of creative project that would walk in the door i would do sometimes i would design a brochure for a bank design logos and identities for european networks because that's where people would give us work so we're designing logos we're designing websites brochures uh, we're designing style frames a sequence for for main title designs and and broadcast packages and things like that. So anything that came in the door, we took. And most of those opportunities came from friends or people I used to work with. And we're in L.A., we're in downtown Los Angeles. And so there's there's opportunity there because there's a lot of creative things happening. The problem was he saw instant success. Now, it sounds strange calling that a problem. But for Chris, it
1: caused the false expectation in his mind that things would always be good. As he and I talked about this, he wondered aloud if this was something common to freelancers. Actually, he concluded that it is given how many he's talked to over the years.
2: Yes. Well, some of that breeds arrogance and expectation. So I didn't appreciate my client. I thought they should appreciate me because I'm going to give them my talent, my gifts, and they pay me and I thought they should take me out to dinner. (laughs) I didn't realize in business, you actually appreciate your client and you take them out to dinner. So it's one of those things. So ultimately, what happens is if you're too dumb like me, you take things for granted. And I wasn't really willing to bend. So ultimately, two of our big accounts <clears throat> who allowed me to grow my company from a one person operation to a five person operation within a year, one, one decided we're going to work with somebody else for different reasons. And one decided we're going to just bring this in house because it was just too expensive to do with us. And then that, that basically our money train just derailed. So it was the first time I think like this is within a year of just starting a company. Uh, that now I had to like let everybody go. He had developed not only the portfolio
1: he always coveted, but a reputation for one who cared deeply about his craft, if not his clients. But it was time to rethink how he led his own agency. Early success, however great, doesn't always mean permanent success. Now, after the break, you'll hear how he went about changing what types of clients he went after, how he approaches new client acquisition, and even some of his unique insights on the design process. Stay with me. Friends, if you haven't heard the newest podcast from Milo you are missing out. We've just launched My Freelance Life, where Andy Conlan joins Milo founder Preston Lee as they explore the ups and downs, mostly the ups, of living outside the bounds of the traditional nine-to-five. You'll follow Andy's personal path from resignation to full-time freelancer and world traveler. And then all the while, when I was in school, I always found myself looking up other opportunities. How can I get a job to go,
2: you know, live in the Seychelles and work doing, you know, marine preservation or something? Or, you know, how can I become a dive master and then go live on an island and teach people scuba diving? And I was always like attracted to these uh, non-traditional ways of making a living.
1: That's my freelance life. Search your favorite podcast apps directory or visit millo.co to follow Andy's journey.
2: I don't think in short-term, short-range goals. I think of the long game, the long tail, if you will, meaning that I build relationships with people in the genuine hopes that there's value that's being exchanged. Sometimes the currency they pay you back, then is just their appreciation and their fondness for you. And that's it. Now, a lot of people have a hard time with this. They would say, Chris, why are you doing this? You're just getting used. Like Everybody wants a piece of your time and you don't have enough time in the day. You need to focus on you. So they can't see those relationships. So a lot of times when people say to me, "Oh, do I need to network more?" Like, oh, what is this networking thing about? I' roll my eyes because I don't think it's about networking at all. I think it's just about building genuine relationships with people that you like and that you trust. And that may go nowhere or it may go somewhere.
1: Welcome back. Christo had built a powerful, successful design agency in his first year, but he took his clients for granted lost a couple key ones, and he had to rearrange the furniture, so to speak. He knew he wasn't positioned well for the future, obviously. But what do you do in this situation? If things were going well, and you obviously still have the design chops from a talent standpoint, but you know something's not quite right, do you overhaul? Do you just go sign up more clients? Chris decided that he needed to rethink how he did the work, but also how he attracted clients for whom to do that work.
2: But the, believe it or not, I think the first music video we ever did was for Norris Barkley. Crazy. And he goes, Chris, they want this done in nine days. How are we going to do this? And I said, what's the budget? And he goes, they don't have a lot of money either. I said, let me read the treatment. I sit down and read through it. And it's a wonderful treatment written by Robert Hal's, the director. And we didn't hear the song or anything. And he says, Chris, I, I, I don't think we can do this. I said... I read the treatment. It's fantastic. It talks about a Rorschach test, about seeing something that nobody's ever seen before, about these interpretations. I said, if you don't figure out a way to do this, when you see this air on somebody else's real, you'll forever regret it. And I want you to remember this conversation. He shakes his head, he smiles. He's like, okay, I'll figure out a way to make it. And for nine days, we jammed out like a beast so we do all these tasks, and then it, it winds up, we're shooting elements, and we produce this thing, and this thing becomes this monster hit by two people relatively unknown at that time, Danger Mouse and ZeeLo Green. Nobody even heard of ZeeLo Green before. And this becomes now the number one um, thing on the Billboard charts as a digital release only. That music video led to several others, including one for the song Ink by Coldplay. I listened to the song like a hundred times. I looked at the lyrics and I kept just listening and trying to figure out what Chris Martin was going through at that point in time in his life. And so I can just see like how he feels like he tried and it didn't work and it's heartbreaking. So there's a sadness and a sorrow to that. And this is the process I go through for any kind of project. I look at it. I study it. I try to find context and I just let all the things that I've learned just kind of develop in my mind until something bubbles up to the top. And this is one thing that I've talked about in my podcast before, is if you saturate your brain and you focus so much on something and you give it some time to work on it, that your subconscious, your unconscious brain will do most of the work for you. And I think if, let's just make a parallel here. There are bands like the Rolling Stone, Elton John, the Beatles, who are able to produce hit after hit after hit. I suspect whether they're able to articulate it or not, they figured out some kind of process.
1: All right, so at this and point, Chris one provided one me with a really neat and deep parallel between music love, and the design and industry. The the How successful garbage, people follow a process to let ideas sort of later, emerge. They don't look for strokes of genius no within themselves.
2: So the parallel here is we got into the weeds the just a little one bit designer, here, so I'm summarizing what Chris had to share. Or the Rolling Stone. I would rather the bigger
1: point is this. Do you field slam field. your head against the so wall trying to solve is. problems and, and or generate ideas as right though now, you're always on like deadline? Or do you tinker and examine and your crashers, problems and, you and you let your brain sort of play with them a little bit see to see if the solution just sort of emerges? That's how Chris goes about it. So, Chris and his team also produced a video for Danish band The Ravenettes and their song Heart of Stone. That video won him an Emmy for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Animation in 2010. And yet, as mentioned earlier, something was still missing for Chris with his agency. There was still conflict. The agency was now doing great work again, but it wasn't ready for the future.
2: So my my life and my my professional and creative life are all intertwined with conflict, right? So the uh, I think about 4 or 5 years ago, I started noticing the decline of commercial work for studios like ours, where we're kind of small to medium-sized design studio. Fewer opportunities to work on commercials and it seemed like the work was drying up <clears throat> like our best days were behind us. And I started to think about like things that we can do. And I tried many different things that didn't work. And ultimately, I, I wanted to do web design again. 22 years or 20 some odd years later from starting and then leaving it and coming back to it. Now now, now it's a web 5.0 or whatever web it is, right? And I tried something and I failed miserably. And I was like, well, web is not for us. So it's around this time that I bump into a friend of mine and I tell him, it's like, oh yeah, I just this web experience. He's like, oh man, I'll help you with web. I said, tell me what I'm not getting, man, because I'll show you. And this begins a relationship with my co-founder of the school, Jose Caballer, or Caballer. And he then shows me this framework that he's developed. As long as I've been in motion design, he's been in the web design world. And then he starts to pull me into creating content because we started our company together and we need to sell product. In order for people to know about us, we need to create content. And he was used to being on camera and he was used to doing weekly shows. And now he wanted to leverage our experience in producing videos and start producing videos for YouTube. I started to produce some videos like before, but Jose had produced all of them, meaning We'd have a 20-minute meeting before the show, and then we would just start recording. It's just totally spontaneous, speaking off the cuff. We produced an episode, and it started to take off. We got a lot more views than any other videos we produced, so this really encouraged me. This encouraged me in the way that I got really positive feedback in views and comments that this was a, a video that really helped them to understand something. And so I thought, man, we need to make an effort at producing content if we want people to tune in to watch. And that began the first arc of what the future is. Jose and I ultimately had different views of where we wanted to take it and how to get there, tactics. So we shook hands, we parted. I walked away with assets that we agreed to ahead of time and he walked away with his assets. And so I rebranded the company as The Future and now we produce videos on an almost weekly basis. I mean, we were streaming three times a week. Uh, Prior to the year,
1: we've all heard how we need to be producing quality content that our target audience can consume to get to know us better. But where is Chris publishing his content? His newer brand, The Future, and you need to drop the E on the word future there, is a YouTube channel that Chris produces. It's a separate entity from Blind, his agency. It's not really intended to promote Blind or win Blind new clients per se, but it is a tremendous branding vehicle for him and the team. Through it, Every day or two they'll share well-produced content surrounding design. Sometimes it's really process-oriented, maybe sometimes it's a little bit more personal directed at individuals for their own branding. Occasionally there are rebroadcasts of talks. Occasionally there are rebroadcasts of talks Chris has given somewhere else.
2: Hey everybody, it's Chris, and on this episode of The Process, we're going to be reviewing portfolios. You're listening
1: to so one of the website, more recent episodes of The Future logos, on YouTube. Design, episodes get anywhere from 4,000 or a over 100,000 views, depending on the subject. Lot. Some are very personal, some are very Facebook, how-to. Comments, it's a great channel and a great vehicle Burns, for Chris.
2: Who I'll introduce in a little bit. He'll be responding to your comments, and he'll be feeding me some of those So with questions. The Future
1: doing its thing, you- Chris takes blind back to web design and comprehensive brand design. There were a few people he had to thank for his early work who never stopped believing in him, singing his praises, even referring clients to him. Jason Hoover, Kim and Alain Briere. This time around, though, he knew he'd need to approach his client development work in a new way, in a way that most freelancers, especially designers, won't do.
2: Okay, so Blind, the way we needed to brand Blind was not to be a company that makes things. We don't charge for the logo. We charge for the creative thinking. The logo is a souvenir of that. So we try to elevate us from what everybody else is doing. And everybody else just shows you their wares. Like I have knives, I have forks, and I have uh, ceramics. What do you want to buy? We want to say like we're a lifestyle designer and we can work with any of these suppliers to give you what you want. So we need to be moving towards the strategic consultative business versus the crafting making things. Because in the world, there's many people that can do that really well. So like I said before, I'm a product of conflict and change, right? So the conflict right now that a lot of creatives are facing is this race to the bottom. These global market forces where people are living in countries where the average salary for a person a year is $5,000. And they're just as smart. They're just as talented. You're lying to yourself if you think that, that they're not. They just don't have the opportunity you have in, in first world countries. They say that if you're living in a first world country, you need to take advantage of market forces that are in your favor today. You have clients willing to pay you in dollars for work that you can then get and then hire other people to help you make at a lower price. But you have to elevate yourself from the person who's going to be in the grind making it yourself, your costs and your company and yourself, potentially your family, the benefit of being in a first world market. I see all challenges as some kind of game. And I don't like to lose. I want to learn the rules of the game. I want to learn how to play it better. And I like winning. It doesn't really matter what you put me in front of. I'm going to apply that same kind of mindset. And so what I realized, there's something that's about my brain, the way I'm hardwired, that I don't really care so much about what other people think. So, So many creatives give away the power that they already have by caring what other people think. They think if I say this, they'll think I'm rude. So there's this internal debate that happens with most creatives that they give up all the power. And there's a quote somewhere, I, I hope I get this thing right. It's like, if you treat someone like a star, they'll treat you like a fan. So I think what creatives do is they come into the room like, oh my gosh, I just, I can't believe I'm here. And they sell them short, themselves short the entire time.
1: Chris is entirely convinced that this is the way one sells creative services. You have to elevate the dialogue. You have to build a real conversation within a community. You can't just pitch your way to success creatives will win clients because of the strength of their work their portfolio and how they properly market it or position it or feature it they won't win when they resort to or are willing to submit to outdated sort of show up throw up type of pitches
2: okay so john made has talked about this that there are three kinds of design the one is he was called like classical design where craftsmanship is king and there's like one right way to do something Two, he talks about user experience or design thinking. And that's where the world world of web design and app design come in. Third was technology. How you use technology to innovate with design. He says that in the the next 10 years, you can no longer pick one, pick two of three. Okay, so I have a slight modification on that because somebody's like, I don't know about technology. I want to build an app and design. It's like, that's too much. So I think this is where people are going to excel. Designers and creatives who can build community around what they do will excel because you're going to shift away from doing client work you're going to serve your community. You need to put in the time and work. When you say like who are some designers that you might know well they've done a good job of telling their story and building community around what they do. So Aaron Draplin is a perfect example of this. That's what happens when you build community around what you do and that's what we're doing right now. We're building community around the discussion design as it intersects with business branding, and user experience. And this will be m- a much bigger endeavor financially and the impact that we have than Blind Ever will or can dream to have. We've been growing the business now, year over year, 300% or more in revenue. Why is that? It's because the theory is we've given way more value than we've asked people to give back to us. If you're on the right side of that equation, you'll have a sustainable business the rest of your life. That is the story
1: and the wisdom of Chris Doe, Emmy award-winning designer and brand strategist, founder of Blind, and executive producer of The Future on YouTube, and featured guest of our first episode of season four. Thanks for listening in. Stay tuned to our next episode. You'll be introduced to entrepreneur Jake Jorgeman of Lead Cookie. I think the actual initial goal I had set was To sell $1,000 of a productized service in quarter three. And then by the end of quarter three, I think we had sold like 40,000. Again, thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Brandon Hull. Freelance the Founder is a production of Milo. To learn more, visit Milo.co. That's M I L L O.co. We'll catch you next time.